1: Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. As usual, a lot to talk about. So let's get right to our panel uh, for today. We're joined uh, from Washington by the Atlanta General Constitution's Washington correspondent, Tia Mitchell. Tia, it's terrific to have you on the show today, especially, uh, well, it's always good, but today especially because you are going to be back in the hearing room as the uh, January 6th committee Uh, has its latest uh, public hearing. So thanks for being with us uh, today, Tia. Good
0: morning. Good morning.
1: In a few minutes, we'll talk about what we expect uh, the focus of today's hearing is going to be and whether Georgia will once again play a prominent role. Uh, Before we get to that, uh, let me introduce the rest of the panel. Claire Sanders is with us, Senior Lecturer of Political Science at Georgia College and State University. Um, Claire, I was thinking about you this morning because I know one of your areas of special interest is elections, and um, I noticed that um, yesterday a federal judge has denied the uh, effort uh, by uh, voting groups to uh, uh, allow them to continue expanding the pool of people they send absentee ballot applications to. Senate Bill 202 limited... Uh, th- those opportunities for the groups to send out absentee ballot applications. The plaintiffs in this suit were seeking to have that thrown out. The judge said, "No, we can't keep overwhelming people with ballot applications." Um, it's hard for me to figure out whether that's going to have much of an impact or not. Claire,
2: yeah, that goes back. And, and thanks for having me today. It's, it's great to be here. Um, it goes back to that that big question in the in the last election and why- about the difference between ballot applications and then the actual ballots themselves. And there's a lot of confusion in the public about what absentee ballot applications are versus the absentee ballot itself. So we'll have to sort all of that out.
1: Um, It comes down to something very basic. Uh, SB202 says once you've applied for an absentee ballot, you should not continue to be getting Uh, 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 requests from voting groups, various groups, uh, to apply for an absentee uh, uh, ballot. So we'll watch how that unfolds uh, in the weeks and uh, months ahead. Chris Grant is with us. He's the chairman of the Political Science Department and a professor of political science at Mercer University in uh, Macon. Chris, I I think we should add to your biography. Um, Number one, you've You've worked on Capitol Hill, which I didn't realize until I was reading your a biography of you. You were were a congressional fellow in Max Cleland's office when he was working in the U.S. Senate. We know, of course, that one of your areas of expertise is uh, the former Soviet Union, Eastern Europe. You were in Ukraine uh, when the Russians launched their war and were evacuated to Poland. So um, we're glad you're back in Macon, Chris.
3: I'm, I'm glad to be in Macon right now. I have been promoted, I am no longer chair of the department, I am co-chair of the department. So um, I have to give deference to my colleague, Lori Johnson, who's been with you before um, and that we're sharing those duties today. Um, I was with Senator Cleland, um in the summer of 2000, they created a special deal for me so I could go up and spend time in his office. It was really a remarkable experience, it really expanded my understanding. and. Thinking about politics, I met Patricia Murphy up there, and a number of other huh. really fine people. And um, I also learned that from Senator Cleveland, particularly, that you could be disagree you could disagree with others without being particularly disagreeable. And he was a yeah. bright and shining star of what civil politics could be. And I try to remind myself of that.
1: I'm glad you said that. Whatever your politics, whether you're a liberal, whether you're a conservative, whether you voted for or against Max Cleland back in the day, uh, he was beloved on Capitol Hill by almost everyone because he always brought that positive attitude with him in his uh, work. So thanks for pointing that out to us. Um, And uh, Chauncey Alcorn is back with us as well, a reporter at Capital uh, B, which I think Chauncey is such a great addition to uh the uh world of digital journalism for those of us uh who follow you. Um remind remind people what the URL is if they want to go to Capital B and Capital B Atlanta.
4: Absolutely. Thank you, Bill. Um so we have uh Atlanta.capitalbnews.org, which is the uh Capital B Atlanta URL, as well as ca- uh, just capitalbnews.org, which is our um, national um platform as well. So um feel free to check us out. Um, where um, black voters are obviously playing a big role in these elections, and uh, so you know, if you want to see what their what the issues are affecting them, that's a good place to go.
1: And Chauncey, you of course have written for the Grio. Uh, you work worked work for CNN, The Daily Mail, Fortune, The New York Daily News, among other publications. Um, so uh, that's just a little bit of who you've been even before coming to Capital B. So all right. Um, Tia Mitchell, let me start with the story about fundraising in the governor's race. Uh, We now have our quarterly reports back, and there's some pretty astonishing numbers on the Stacey Abrams side. In the past two months alone, between her leadership committee and her own campaign fundraising, they report that they've taken in $22 million—two months—$22 million— and now have $18.5 million cash on hand. At the same time, uh, Brian Kemp raised between, again, his um, uh, leadership committee and his uh, own campaign funding, uh, something like uh, $6.8 million. They report they have $7 million cash on hand. This race, Tia, continues on a pace to be the most expensive governor's race by far, not just in Georgia, it may be one of the biggest races in the country in terms of fundraising when it's all said and done, to you.
0: Yeah, so, you know, we knew that Stacey Abrams was a formidable national political figure. And of course the fundraising is just bearing that out. She's got a huge base that goes far beyond Georgia and she's raising a lot of money. I also think, you know, when, Governor Kemp and his allies came up with this leadership committee thing to kind of try to give them a fundraising edge during the primary. Um, I'm not going to say they didn't think about the effects in the general election, but they prioritized the advantage it would give him in the primary and perhaps didn't account for or decided to just deal with the the fact that his Democratic opponent was going to be able to take advantage of that as well. And she is, and now she's out raising him.
1: Uh, Chauncey, one of the things that's interesting about this is is it's never been a secret that ever since she entered uh, the first race for governor in 2018, Stacey Abrams has had a remarkable ability to raise money from organizations around the country and individuals around the country. Uh, The Republicans during 2018 particularly Uh, use that as leverage to criticize her. Uh, She's taking outside money. She's not getting Georgia money. What does it mean that she's got all these outside funds? But now we're learning um, that while Republicans would like to keep that line of attack going, the Kemp campaign seems to also be recognizing they're going to need to look outside of Georgia to try to keep up the pace, Chauncey. Yeah, this isn't the first time Governor Kemp has
4: um, both complained and uh, kind of uh, picked up from uh, um, Stacey Evans' playbook. Uh, and uh, they were talking, I believe, then in the last election cycle, 2018, about their her ability to, um, you know, uh, grassroots and and get more voters to uh, register. And they were and Republicans trying to learn and pivot and capitalize off of that, off those lessons as well. Um, she's certainly been a political force. I think. If she if if she wasn't so committed to uh um Georgia and becoming the governor, which clearly that seems to be her focus, she would probably be one of the uh leading candidates uh to potentially replace Joe Biden if the Democrats decide um not to, to uh go with him again in twenty
1: twenty four. Claire?
2: I would say there's so much to unpack here. I wish we could um unpack it all. Um so Challengers to incumbents have to overcome the the money problem and the name recognition problem. Those pro, those are not problems for Stacey Abrams, obviously, um, but the two things that aren't problems are, are going to go a long way to to help Abrams. But what she can't control right now is the national climate, the national political climate that relates to the economy, um, inflation, um, gas prices, all of that. So that is you can't control this the fact that the national economy is what it is. Um, the, the political environment seems to be more favorable for Republicans going into the midterms. However, with the recent Dobbs ruling with um other factors, maybe Abrams and her campaign can use their, their um, advantage in fundraising to capitalize on those issues. I mean, the name recognition is there. And the Abrams campaign has is, is taken the strategy of focusing on blocks of voters. And I see the Abrams campaign just really taking that strategy into the midterms, focusing on women in particular, for example, those suburban, um, those coveted suburban women voters.
1: Um, Chris, let me uh, bring you in and add an, a layer to this. Um, when they released, announced their their totals, um, the Abrams campaign put out a four-page memo authored by Lauren Growargo, the campaign manager who's been her longtime closest advisor, cautioning supporters to, quote, not underestimate Brian Kemp's fundraising capacity and predicting that outside groups were going to pour money into his bid grow Argo wrote we're in an uphill uphill battle uh, but our vision of one Georgia is within reach we're excited on the other hand Kemp's campaign uh said that they're being outraged because of quote far left radicals from across the country Chris well,
3: that, that's right anytime you want to mo- mobilize your supporters the other side is far out far out and extreme and um that's that's the way you put position it I think I, I just I want to remark on one thing that I find social scientists remarkable, that in 2022, the best fundraiser in the United States of America is an African-American woman who's not married, Mm. which says a lot about where this country is. And and it says a lot of good things about where this country is, Um, although I don't often find a lot of optimism in in what goes on in campaign work. i study it a lot, but I don't always love what goes on. Um, that's that's a remarkable thing that we ought to think about. Georgia had the most expensive Senate races in the country. In the last election, they were historic highs for the nation as a whole. I think when all was said and done, it was about a half billion dollars we spent on the campaigns in those Senate races. I find that to be astonishing. I'm not. It's not a record that I'm real proud of. Um, Georgia used to have very low cost elections. Some of the low cost, lowest cost per vote in the country. Um, which meant that the elections were not, and even, this was even when the elections were competitive, they were still much lower cost, which meant that people worked for the votes and, and it was much more a volunteer effort. Now, I mean, they're certainly looking for volunteers and I've got students who will be volunteering on the campaigns, but they're much, much more professionalized, which has its advantages. Um, going back to something Claire said that I think is really important is that um, Abrams is targeting specific groups, and this becomes really important for Democrats, especially in a state like Georgia, where it is a possible win state, but it is not a probable win state. And um, you've got to get out every kind of voter that you think, and especially flying into wins in this election. The national wins don't favor Democrats, although I've, I've been saying for a year now, Georgia could be counter to the national wins, and, and, and this could be a very good year for Republicans, but Georgia could be the standout opposite for that. I'm not sure. I'm not predicting no crystal ball. But um, but I do think that you have to get out every group, and the Abrams campaign has to target messages to different groups in different ways, more so than the Kemp campaign does. Part of the Kemp campaign's advantage is they can just say, ooh, Stacey Abrams, and that motivates some people. On the opposite side, some people are motivated by, ooh, Brian Kemp, but not as much.
1: So, uh, T. in just a minute, I want to talk about a new poll from The New York Times and Sienna that shows what kind of headwinds any Democrat, including Stacey Abrams, might, might face. But before we get there, Chauncey, um, we've already heard Claire talk about the Abrams campaign really reaching out to women uh suburban uh, women particularly um but you uh, said the capital b you, you were able to sit in on a session uh, that Stacey Abrams had with African American men tell us just a little bit about that
4: absolutely so um uh, about a week or so ago on um Stacy Abrams uh, uh hosted an event at uh, Cam Newton's fellowship cigar bar this is in um, downtown Atlanta that was geared towards black men. Um the idea behind it is just to kind of hear the issues that are um, you know, the black men care about, some of the issues that they're concerned about, this election cycle, and uh for um candidate Abrams to illustrate how her policies would address those issues. Um this is it's interesting because uh there was a lot made during the 2018 um election cycle uh, uh during their first matchup uh, between, um between Ms. Abrams and Governor uh now Governor Kemp. Uh, uh, There was uh, a relatively small deviation for black men that voted for Kemp. Um, uh, This was also around the same time there was all this fluctuation and, and, uh, with, uh, Donald Trump, then president Donald Trump's approval ratings amongst African Americans. And there was a lot of speculation that there will, there might be some inroads for Republicans to make. It didn't really pan out that way for Trump in 2020. He got about the same, uh, average that you would see, but it was all, there was some concerns raised about, uh, black men as, as, uh, someone just said previously, uh, the uh, Democrats need everybody to turn out. So, um, While 90 percent of black people in general vote Democrat um, in Georgia, uh, they want to make sure show up that base. um, And that was what the event was geared towards.
1: All right. So, uh, Tia, from your desk on Capitol Hill, you have seen uh, President Biden buffeted by progressive Democrats who don't think he's doing enough on major issues like abortion, like gun safety, um, like immigration um, and and that and at the same time, obviously getting nowhere with Republicans and all of that has, I think it's fair to say, contributed to problems that he has with convincing Americans that he's doing a good job for them in the White House. And I want to um, make sure you get a chance to respond to this. The new New York Times Siena poll uh, now shows Biden with an extraordinarily low approval rating, 33 percent. Of course, most Republicans disapprove of his work, but 64% of the Democratic voters who were polled in this said they don't want him to run for re-election in 2024, and only 13% of the total of the people surveyed said they think the country is on the right track. And those are headwinds that Stacey Abrams and every other Democrat is going to have to contend with in the fall elections, right, Tia?
0: Yeah, I mean, Joe Biden has a lot going against him. You know, um, the economy, and I know that's like the understatement of the year, but, like, I think Joe Biden was elected to be the president the American public thought they needed for that moment in time, which is coming off of four years of Donald Trump and Um, not wanting to give Donald Trump another four years. And a lot of Democrats, particularly Black Democrats, were very pragmatic in saying, we're going to pick the guy who we think can beat Donald Trump. Because if we take a risk and pick a guy or a girl that we might like their policies a little better, we don't think Republicans and people in the middle are going to embrace that stuff. And then we might end up with four more years of Donald Trump. So let's go with the guy who we feel strongly can beat Donald Trump. And they bet on Biden and they won. Um, And Biden is giving them in some ways what they wanted. We don't have tweets at midnight on a Saturday that totally derails, you know, potentially national and international security. And we don't have, you know, there's that steady hand. But Biden has his parts, his negatives, mainly age, and we cannot ignore that. He is the oldest man to serve as president. He is, um, what, 78, I think? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, Let's think of the 78-year-olds in our lives, our grandparents. We we love them (laughs) and we honor them, but we wouldn't necessarily feel them qualified to run the world's most powerful nation. That's And they wouldn't necessarily want that job. Like, I know, you know, my mom just retired and she's in her 60s and she just retired and wants to, you know, take, you know, anyways, I think all of those things we are now being confronted with what the reality of having Joe Biden as our president is, which is he's still pretty moderate as a Democrat. He still believes in bipartisanship and things that are getting in the way of what you know progressives would like him to do and he just can't he can't function the same way a younger man could function um if you compare his uh, his schedule his public schedule to Donald Trump or Barack Obama it's just not as robust and you know i think people are saying i don't know if this guy number 1 do we want someone who has a more robust agenda and do we want someone who's more capable
1: of being more active. Well, I think, Claire, let me th- bring you in. Uh, I know you wanna get involved here, Let me, but let me ask you a question to, to bring you into the conversation. It, it does strike me that Biden is caught in a difficult place with his own Democratic Party. Uh, you've got the progressive Democrats on the Hill, very impatient to get action on, uh, on abortion, on guns, on immigration, um, on other issues. And uh, so they're pressing him hard. They are contributing, I think, to the feeling that the administration is in a state of paralysis and can't get things accomplished, even though a lot of what the progressives are asking for are outside of the control of the White House.
2: Absolutely. And I, I echo what Tia said in terms of the sentiment that that's brought President Biden into office was this, that um, Americans were looking for someone to sort of steady the ship, so to speak, independent voters especially. Um, but the problem is, is that the ship isn't steady <laughs> right now. And you have the parties, the political party leaders, the, um, the sort of even extremists in the in the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, who are um arguing for different policies to steady the ship when it's the independent voter in the middle that simply wants someone pain um, so um in terms of the economy and the the turmoil i've I come back to the state elections is it in it's in stacy abrams i would say if i was a campaign strategist i worked on her campaign it's in the interest of that campaign to focus on Georgia politics, whereas it's in the Kemp's campaign interest to focus on national politics.
1: Chris, and then Chauncey.
3: I I would agree with Claire. I want to go back to one thing that Chauncey pointed out earlier about the outreach to black men in particular. Um, Mm -hmm. After the 2018 election, I was playing around with some numbers, and if Stacey had done as well with black men as Obama had in 2012, she would have gotten into the runoff and there would have been a runoff for governor, whether she would have won it or not is a different question. And if I remember correctly, and I could be off on this, I think that that would also have been true if she had done as well as Hillary had done in 2016. And so there is a dimension of politics that comes in with gender. um, And, and, and especially with black men in this election, that is a, is a point that they are looking at and trying to target and think about and one of the, Georgia's really interesting state in a lot of ways, because we have a, a different population. We talk about demographics, but our demographics are not, when we talk about African Americans, a, a particularly um, ill-educated or um, uh, non-affluent population. The, the African American population in Georgia is far ahead of all indicators of other states in the country. And so um, we're talking about a very well-educated, very capable um, political po- force in the um in the electorate and i and I think that stacey has got to be able to keep that together and and motivate and at the same time bring some people in that may be leaning some more conservative African Americans that may lean more toward the right and can be picked up occasionally and she's got to motivate young voters who are typically very liberal and want to see a liberal agenda affected and convince these suburban moms that Claire's talk about, the suburban women, who, yeah, they go back and forth in the elections, and they're not real convinced, and they certainly are put off by anything that looks particularly radical. And that's a very hard thing to knit together, and it's one of the reasons she needs a lot of money.
1: Chauncey, before we get to a break, I, I'm glad that Chris brought us back uh, to the governor's race and Claire did, too, uh, because I want to add an element to this and, and ask you about it. You know, I think, you know, we now know that the state of Georgia is once again, again, going to have an enormous surplus uh, at the end of FY 2021. Um, we know the last and we also have the second tranche of federal money, COVID relief money, $2.4 billion Dollars. We know what Kemp did with that, a lot of that money last time. He gave out income tax breaks worth a billion dollars. He gave raises to teachers, state employees. What's fascinating, Chauncey, is that this year, Stacey Abrams has tried to take the momentum away from him. She got out front and said, I'm going to give taxpayers a billion-dollar income tax break, and uh, I'm ur- urging the governor not to wait people need it now they he should not wait for legislative approval if he had any standing with democrats in the administration he'd go to the white house and ask for permission to use that surplus that of covid money uh for these tax cuts so she's trying to preempt the governor on something that that he thought was going to be very successful for him and probably was in his primary contest yeah I th-
4: uh you picked up on a very uh, important point that i think uh Abrams has done a brilliant job of kind of uh, deflecting uh, the attacks from um, Governor Kemp that she's uh, some out of touch far left uh, liberal um, or progressive. Um, uh, another one, in addition to the tax cut, I think that has been a, a point of attack for the Kemp campaign has been the whole narrative around Ms. Abrams uh, supporting Defund the Police. Well, she responded by that by saying, I want to give cops raises. She took a lot of heat on Twitter. Uh, there's a lot of people. You know, um, especially in the black community um, who are in favor of police reform, some who are in favor of not just uh, defunding, uh, but also some of that want to abolish police. But if you look at the polls, uh, polling black people, um, both in Georgia and nationally, uh, crime has been a major concern um, over the last couple of years. And I can tell you anecdotally from from just talking to both leaders and um everyday black folks throughout the uh the state, particularly in the Atlanta metro area, that this is something they always cite. So um it's very clear that Ms. Abrams understands um what uh the difference between Twitter and quote unquote the real world and what actual black people are concerned about. Um namely uh and this New York Times uh Story and poll uh, backed this up as well. Um, the issues that they cited as their top concerns were inflation and, um, as well as issues of relating to gun violence. So these are the th- some of the things. And uh, again, she has um, backed this up with policy and done a very good job um, um, working with the media um, to kind of illustrate this is exactly what I would do to uh, address these issues to try to deflect the attacks. And it's hard for the governor to sustain that. Um, and when she's laying out there, no, you can't say I'm for defunding the police. I literally want to give them raises.
1: All right. Uh, Chauncey Alcorn gets the last word on the first segment. We got to take a break. We'll be back in just a moment with more.
2: Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else.
1: Um, I mentioned in the headlines to the show that the New York Times-Siena Paul had a little bad news for Donald Trump as well. And what I meant by that is virtually half of Republican voters surveyed said they would rather have another candidate than Donald Trump uh, as their nominee in 2024. Ron DeSantis is the guy right now who uh, is a preferable choice to um, many Republicans out there. So I just wanted to make sure I mentioned that. Uh, Tia Mitchell, uh, Chauncey Elkhorn. Chris Grant, and Claire Sanders uh, join us on today's show. Tia, you have been in the hearing room for um, maybe every one, but certainly most of the January 6th committee hearings, and you'll be back there this afternoon. They start at 1 o'clock. Of course, GPB will carry the hearings on all of our platforms, on air, TV, radio, and digital as well. Tia, would you mind, just give us a moment. What does it feel like in that Room. What's the atmosphere like? I, I see that most of the room is taken up with tables for media, which makes sense since the January 6th committee wants to get as much attention from the media as possible. What's it feel like in that room?
0: So I have not missed a hearing yet. And the room feels, it's it's shifted depending on the testimony. You know, the day that the testimony included Um, The ladies from Atlanta, the, the Atlanta election workers and their personal testimony of feeling attacked and that their safety was in jeopardy because of the lies about the election. That was really heavy. It was really sad. You know, the testimony from the officers talking about fighting the rioters and talking about, you know, she was fighting through her colleague's blood. That was, you know, it's heavy stuff. And we're, you know us journalists, we are human too. And it's not easy sometimes to hear really terrible things, but I will say in general, the, we understand the weight of what's going on. And we feel that our duty is to make sure that people at home know what's being said in the room and digest it and have it boiled down. So I expect nothing different. Um, today. I do think it might it may be a little heavy at times. We know that it's gonna focus on the role of extremism and conspiracy theories. What what I'll be listening for is um there's gonna be some discussion about QAnon and the QAnon conspiracy theories and how that also played into January sixth. You know, there was this like there were groups with different agendas that all came together that day. You had militia groups, you had Um, far-right white nationalist groups, and then you had QAnon conspiracy theorists, and they were all kind of melded together, both at the Stop the Steel rally and later at the Capitol. And we know that QAnon played a part in Marjorie Taylor Greene's rise to prominence, for example. I don't know if that's going to come up today, but that's the type of thing I will be listening for.
1: Claire, uh, we do know that um, since the last hearing, just the other day, Uh, the White House attorney, Pat Cipollone, uh, finally came in and gave uh, testimony behind closed doors to the committee. Trying to predict what the committee is going to showcase and how, I've learned is a fool's errand, but let's assume it's likely that we're going to see clips from Pat Cipollone today, and that could be very important because he will be able to uh, uh, expand upon what Cassidy Hutchinson told Uh, the committee about how Trump was behaving uh, leading up to January 6th and during the insurrection itself.
2: Yes. So um, I won't pretend to to predict what's happening either um, with the committee hearings, but I will say that what we are seeing is sort of that inner circle um, um, coming apart. And I think it's contributing not only to the Trump fatigue, Um, nationally, but also within the Republican Party itself. And I think you're seeing that reflected in some recent polls um, among Republicans about um, the possibility of Donald Trump running again, and um, especially younger Republicans, younger um, conservatives who just um, are ready to move on from Trump. So I definitely think that if anything, the, the committees are reinforcing sort of or contributing to this sort of Trump fatigue that we're seeing in some of the polls right now.
1: Uh, Chris, of course, w- we got January 6th hearings going on. In parallel to that, uh, Fani Willis's Fulton County special grand jury looking at uh, Trump. We know she expanded her list of witnesses that she is subpoenaing to include that Trump inner circle. Rudolph Giuliani, John Eastman and others. Lindsey Graham has been fighting a subpoena uh, saying that he is uh, immune as a member of the United States Senate from having to talk about matters that pertain to his work in the Senate. A Fulton County judge, uh, Judge McBurney, yesterday said, sorry, Senator, uh, you're not covered because this was extra legislative uh, involvement. He made two phone calls to Secretary of State's office saying you ought to look at absentee ballots a little more closely This isn't over in the courts. Lindsey Graham will obviously appeal, but so far he's lost his bid to not have to testify.
3: It will be interesting to see how far this case goes. Um, I think most people would argue that there is the, the Constitution provides for senators to be able to conduct the duties of their job, and I think we all look at that as a legislative function of their job. Um, This is not the legislative function of the job, and no surprise that a a judge in Georgia would say that. It would be interesting to see when it goes to the federal system, because the federal system may look at this differently, Um, and it might go all the way to the Supreme Court before it's all over with. Um, It's a very interesting case, and of course, the Supreme Court has not given unlimited executive privilege to presidents, especially um, on matters that are in the past.
1: Johnson. Yeah,
4: um, Senator Graham is such an interesting case, uh, a guy who went from, um, you know, being almost a never Trumper, but when the president was uh, when the former president was running in the 2016 cycle to, um, you know, being one of his uh, uh, strongest supporters while he was in office to um, on January 6th, saying he was out um, after um, the, the uh, insurrectionists tried to storm the Capitol and now he's in a position where he's really stuck between a rock and a hard place. I think the one thing that he can't afford to do is be one of the uh guys that is labeled uh, or rightly or wrongly as contributing to Trump's demise. Uh, while Trump certainly has lost uh, a lot of popularity um as it relates uh, sp- particularly when he focuses on issues perceived to be about him and not about the uh, groundswell of right-wing support that he kind of rode to uh his his uh 2016 victory. Um he still has a obviously a strong following and that's been uh playing out in primaries uh throughout the country, while not necessarily obviously not so much in Georgia, but other states. And uh I don't think uh you know Senator Graham wants to be in a position where he might be uh the guy who you know potentially uh gets uh takes Trump down or any of his followers.
1: <sighs> Tia yeah, there seems to be real synergy between the January sixth committee and the Fulton County uh, District Attorney's Office, Fonnie Willis, and all this. Uh, There seems to be some back and forth. In terms of information that's being gleaned, I don't mean to suggest that Fonnie Willis is secretly or quietly leaking testimony to the January 6th committee, but clearly she is getting uh, uh, good information that she can expand upon here in Georgia.
0: Yeah, I think, and I don't think it's really a secret that... There is conversation, there is cooperation, not just between Sonny Willis's office of the district attorney and the January 6th committee, but Sandy Willis also can um, coordinate with the Department of Justice. Or again, I don't coordination might be too strong of a word, but could be in conversation, communication with the Department of Justice. You know, there's a little bit of a firewall between the January 6th committee and the Department of Justice. We've seen that um, that the January 6th committee has operated very independently of the Department of Justice, but I think there's a little bit more of an open door between the district attorney's office and the Department of Justice because, again, they're both kind of looking at possible criminal matters.
1: Claire, before we get uh, to our final break of the show, I want to ask you to expand a little bit about a co- on a comment you made a couple of minutes ago. You said that you think that what we're seeing happen in the January 6th uh, hearings uh, might be contributing to Trump fatigue. And, and the reason I, among his own people, among Republicans, and, and the reason I want to ask you to expand upon it is because I, I think there have been questions about how much attention the American people are paying to the hearings. The ratings have been pretty good. Uh, uh, for the most part, and they've been extraordinarily well packaged. Um, So give me your sense of what you think about the way they're impacting how we're all watching uh, to see uh, how it's affecting Trump's image.
2: So in terms of timing, we know in politics, it's all about timing. We also know that um, when it comes, if we're talking about the, the midterm elections and how we think maybe the hearings will factor into the midterm elections, the midterm elections are along, they're way in the future, right? I know it seems like they're coming up quickly, but politically speaking, it's forever away. So um what I do think the, the hearings are doing in terms of contributing to this Trump fatigue is that it's sort of – um of the revelations and you're right everything has been packaged very carefully um has been um the ratings have been relatively high for the hearings but i think it's giving certain parts of the republican party groups in the republican party the permission to move on if that makes any sense um so for example um the the never trumpers we we know they've moved on but you see like even in the state of Georgia, like Brian Kemp, Jeff Duncan, these these um, political figures who have been at odds with the with Trump. um, I think the committee hearings are are sort of reinforcing that idea that for certain Republicans, it's okay to move on and, and and move on to other candidates.
1: All right. um, I've got Chauncey and Chris. Chauncey and then Chris.
4: Yeah, I I wanted to add to that. I think one of the other things that the uh, hearings has done, uh, one of the problems that the Democrats have this cycle or have had is that they don't have Donald Trump to run against. Obviously the party in power is, uh, the election is always going to be a referendum on the party in power. Uh, The January 6th hearings have been a way for them to still have Donald Trump as his boogeyman. And, uh, um, for for people who are both um, on the left as well as in the center, um, in the chaos that um, the Trump administration um, had while he was in office, in particular, it's kind of a, a scare tactic that is effective because it shows what um, could potentially happen if Trump was to be in office again, as well as the people that support him. And uh, while Democrats certainly have had their own issues um, governing, um, they're looking and saying this is what. If you don't want to give us power back, these are the people that are going to be in control of the country. Is that something that you want? And we've already uh, seen, obviously, the uh, effects of Trump's Supreme Court judge appointment, um, uh, justice appointment um, with the overturn of Roe. And uh, that was another uh, opportunity for Democrats to say, yeah, maybe we haven't done everything you want, but if you don't vote for us, these are the people, there's going to be more of this. So, I think that's been a they've done a great job um of painting that out with all the uh scary things that we've learned coming out of the January sixth uh,
1: committee. Chris Grant last word before the break sure
3: I, I think that one of the, there's two places in Georgia politics where you might see some friction in the Republican Party between the Trumpers and those that would like to shut the door and move on. One is in the u s Senate race with Herschel Walker and uh, Raphael Warnock. I think this might have something to do with explaining why Warnock's ahead. I think there's other factors related to Walker's candidacy and, and a myriad of factors related to the candidate himself that, that play into that. But I think that may play into it a little bit. The second place that I'm real curious about, and, and it's an interesting scenario, uh, would be in the lieutenant governor's race. And if mm-hmm. the the only outstanding pro-Trump candidate is the candidate on the Republican side for lieutenant governor – Should that give, in a tight, tight, tight election cycle, a chance for Charlie Bailey to slip into lieutenant governor's race, even if uh, Republicans control every other statewide race? And I've thought about that before, just kind of wondering where things are going.
1: Oh, Chris Grant, you gave me a perfect lead into our commercial. We're going to come back in a minute and talk about the U.S. Senate race um, with our panel. But first, we got some underwriters to uh, give a little time to. Let's do that, and we'll be back in a minute. So the country is baking under some of the hottest summer temperatures we've ever seen. Here in Georgia, it's strange that it's almost a relief if the temperature only gets to 88 or 89 degrees on a summer day. Drought is affecting a good portion of the country, and the Supreme Court says the EPA doesn't have as much power to deal with climate change as uh, they thought they did. I mention all that because tomorrow we're going to take a look at all of this climate change, with two of the country's leading experts, Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, Dr. Marilyn Brown from Georgia Tech. They have a lot to say about what we're experiencing and why we've got to act now. We'll get to that uh, tomorrow. Chris Grant, since you brought it up first, uh, the Raphael Warnock uh, battle against Herschel Walker is one of the most interesting, if not the most interesting, Senate races in the country. And uh, it's interesting that we're beginning to wonder whether there's going to be some ticket splitting. Uh, Republicans who vote for Brian Kemp for governor but vote for uh, 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 the uh, incumbent, Raphael Warnock, uh, for uh, Senate. And you think that Trump may be uh, part of the reason that uh, Walker is suffering a little bit. But his misstatements and all we're hearing about the dissension in his campaign— The baggage, personal baggage that he carries has got to be all part of that, Chris.
3: Uh, Oh, yeah. I think it's a combination of factors, much of which are associated with the candidate himself um, that make it difficult. But I also this narrative that may come true may become that Herschel Walker is kind of a Trump-imposed candidate on the Republicans of Georgia, uh, which allows them to have some cover from this candidate that is by many – measures, not the um, strongest candidate we've seen come down the pike um, in a state that's had relatively strong Republican candidates now for a quarter century.
4: Chauncey? Yeah, I, I I think the Trump issue with Walker is, uh, in my personal view, uh, uh not as prevalent as some might think. He hasn't really done a lot, uh, whereas, uh, like, uh, Senator David Perdue, and, uh, like, emphasizing um, you know, the, the election being rigged or, or things of that nature, most of the time he's been spending uh, has been focused on deflecting uh, his own personal scandals and, and, and responding to those. I think a bigger issue with um, Walker and then this issue with Warnock, uh, wh- which is interesting because uh, one of the things that um, I, uh, after interviewing both of them uh, recently for a couple of stories, um, Senator Warnock has been very focused on, um uh, letting people know he, what he's done for them in terms of uh bills that support the issues that are that are most uh prevalent right now, namely inflation um I think the black um uh electorate is is a big key here um senator walker uh sorry, i shouldn't say Senator walker candidate walker <laughs> has been um hasn't done a very good job of appealing to uh black folks and I think that was one of the uh, things that Republicans thought a black candidate would be able to do. But all the polls uh, most recently have shown he, uh, he has less support amongst black people in Georgia than Brian, even Brian Kemp, or if you wanted to go back to 2020, than Donald Trump. Uh, I, I recently asked him about that, and uh, he kind of deflected and, and said he didn't think that the poll was accurate. Uh uh, I think it was either at the Quinnipiac poll or the uh, East Carolina poll that had his black support at around 7%. And again, that's less than the, uh, what Brian Kemp had. So that is, I think, uh, a bigger factor. It's just his, you know, his uh, foibles and um, missteps and, um, you know, bad interviews and things of that nature.
1: Tia, one of the things Chauncey wrote for Capital B was the story about how uh, Warnock's agenda is appealing uh, to black voters across the state. And one of the big ones, of course, is he's pushing the president uh, on uh, the, the issue of canceling uh, student loans. Um, and, and that's something that uh, Chauncey writes is important to uh, black voters. He also talks about the federal gas tax is hitting black families harder than white families. Um, so your take on uh, the way Warnock is, uh, is uh, legislating and running his campaign.
0: Yeah, Warnock has taken a very populist approach to legislating um, on issues, as you mentioned, like taxes and student debt, but also on health care, which we know is universal um, insulin, the cost of insulin with diabetes being such a prevalent chronic disease um, in America. So I think... Warnock's team knew that the attacks from the right were going to be either that he was too extremist, too woke, or that he was too closely tied to Joe Biden. And they've kind of the woke, extreme, radical, liberal piece has kind of fallen away because Republicans realize it doesn't really work for Warnock. Um, But they are trying very hard to tie him to President Biden, and he does, like most Democrats, he does tend to vote the way Biden wants. but. Warnock has created contrast in a lot of different areas that he will continue to use throughout the campaign. Well, he'll talk about, I'm the one who told Joe Biden, you need to suspend this federal gas tax. And I'm the one who told Joe Biden, we're tired of waiting, get rid of the filibuster so we can pass, you know, election reform or get rid of the filibuster so that, and not that Joe Biden can get rid of the filibuster, but he does, you know, say a lot. I called out Joe Biden to do this. And thanks to my call out, Joe Biden has said that.
1: Claire, good, good points uh, from Tia.
0: No, very good point.
2: Um, in terms of, of Raphael Warnock, I would say in political science, you talk about your Hill style versus your, your home style. And Warnock has, seems to be doing well with navigating both of those approaches. So he's um, positioned himself well on the Hill um, he comes back home. He can take credit for what for what he has done, um, what he's attempted to do, um, and he also um, I'm hearing from around the state has a really good reputation. His office has a really good reputation for constituency services. So he's really built, um, I think, in the short time that he's been there, a record for um, for that an incumbent wants to build to to be that um, that that hill that a challenger will have to climb right to um because Warnock there Warnock um is has the experience of being in office and that's something that his his challenger does not have
1: chris you
3: want to get a final that, word in that that one other thing senator warnock has is a very helpful partner in senator ossoff senator ossoff is lying back he's not taking up the stage He's not, oh, going down to the White House and declaring that he's in favor of the president's tax cuts without telling his partner in the Senate that he's about to do that. Ossoff is playing the role very well. They collaborate a lot. They work together a lot. And I think Georgians like that vision, regardless of party.
1: Um, all right. Chris Grant, you get the final word on today's Political Rewind. By the way, Chauncey Alcorn, um, we're going to post a link to your piece that we talked about a minute ago about uh, how Raphael Warnock is legislating in a way that he hopes will uh, um, assure that uh, uh, African-American voters turn to him in the fall. We'll put that up on our social media. Um, again, tomorrow we're back with a brand new show. We're going to really focus on climate change with Marshall Shepard and Marilyn Brown. We hope you'll join us uh, for that. Um, but my thanks Uh, to Chauncey Alcorn, Claire Sanders, Chris Grant, Tia Mitchell. Good work today and really can't wait to see your uh, reporting on this afternoon's hearings. Um, That's it. We're back with a brand new show tomorrow. Jay Cook, thanks for taking over directing the show today. I'm Bill Nigut. Until I see you again, take care. Please stay healthy. Bye, everybody.